0: welcome to the out of bounds sports podcast come with us out of bounds as we discuss and debate the latest topics in the world of sports we have a great show ahead so let's get to it
1: welcome to the out of bounds sports podcast i'm your host Corey harrison this podcast is the full show for today's episode we have a great show lined up thank you for listening Thank you for tuning in to the Outer Bounds Sports Podcast, the sports podcast where we dive into current and up-to-date sports topics. I'm your host, Corey Harrison. On my show, you'll hear from everyday podcasters like myself, sharing their personal feelings about sports news and updates. There won't be any experts, just honest opinions and debates. Today's show, we have a veteran author, a well-renowned veteran sports reporter who has covered the NBA and NHL. His name is Cecil Harris. We have a packed show, so let's get right into it. The champ is here! The champ is here! The champ is here! The champ is here! Champ is here. Hello and welcome to the Out of Bounds Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Harrison. Today, I'm joined with a special guest with me today, Mr. Cecil Harris is the author of four books, Charging the Net, Called the Yankees, My Daddy, Breaking the Ice, and also Different Strokes, Serena Venus, and the Unfinished Black Tennis Revolution. He has also written on sports for the New York Times, New York Daily News, the New York Post, uh, Newsday, the Raleigh News and Observer, the Indianapolis Star, and the Associate Press. He's also a graduate of summa, summa cum laude from Fordham University and also a freelance sports writer. Again, Cecil, welcome to Out of Bounds. How are you, sir? I'm fine, Corey. How are you? I'm doing great. Great. So Cecil, um, you are quite the accomplished writer. I actually want to get into some of your background. Um, but first, I want to also um, you know, kind of talk about um, what got you into writing books? Um, I want to know a little bit about that and also what you're like, what you're currently working on now. Okay. Um, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and there are
0: multiple teams in all the major sports in New York. So I grew up really immersed in sports, you know, baseball in the summer, football in the fall, basketball, hockey in the winter into the spring and i played a lot of sports but didn't play any sport very well and knew that i would never become a professional athlete so the next best thing to me was to get into sports reporting and when it came time for me to choose a college i did my homework and found out that fordham university in new york city has so turned out a lot of uh, sports journalists writers and broadcasters i can mention a couple that um the audience would know. Mike Green does the play-by-play for the NBA on ESPN, ABC. Uh, He's a Fordham graduate. Uh, Vin Scully, who was the voice of the Los Angeles Dodgers for more than 50 years, he's a Fordham graduate. So I chose to go there. And when I came out of Fordham, well, while I was still there, I got an internship at Gannett Newspapers in New York. And they assigned me one day a week to go to New York Giants training camp to give the beat writer a day off. And to go to New York Jets training camp one day to give the beat writer a day off. And they liked my stories. So, when the internship was over and I was ready to go back to Fordham for my senior year, they offered me a part time job. And they said, um there could be a full time job waiting for you after you graduate. So, I went to my senior year at Fordham and I already had a job and I already knew I wanted to be in sports journalism. So, I was covering a variety of things for them. And, you know, being in New York City, there's The US Open tennis. That's how I really got into tennis, really watching the US Open every year. Uh, Track and field, baseball, football, basketball, hockey, soccer, all kinds of things. And I eventually became the beat writer for the New York Yankees. First black person to become full-time beat writer for the New York Yankees. That's from spring training in February all the way through. And when I got on the beat, they started winning again, going to the playoffs. So October baseball, you know, was exciting. And I was there covering the Yankees, for example, in 1996 when they won their first World Series in 18 years, the 96 Yankees. And that started the dynasty. They won four World Series in five years. So I really enjoyed covering baseball. But over the years, I've wanted to cover a variety of different sports. I mean, I, I had a chance to cover the Olympics the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta, which was exciting because uh, they assigned me to boxing and I got to interview very briefly the man whose image is on your shirt, Muhammad Ali, because the boxing was at Georgia Tech. And um, no American had won a, a gold medal until the final day of boxing when a, a fighter from Philadelphia named David Reed was in against a Cuban who it was favored to win. And they have only... Three rounds, and in amateur boxing, then three three-minute rounds. And Reed was behind on points. He needed a knockout to win. It was like a Hollywood scenario. He needed to knock out the Cuban who was favored to win. And David Reed knocked him out, and the place went crazy. And Muhammad Ali had a ringside seat. And I ran over from my seat in the press table. I said, "Mr. Ali, what do you think of David Reed?" And Ali said, "He's a bad boy." And then I wrote that down. And uh, Ali's handlers basically took him away because I wasn't supposed to go into that section. But I just wanted to get a quote from Ali about right. what just happened, you know, just dramatic. And he gave me that quote. I put it in my story. It was a well-received story. And you know, it's a thrill for me to this day to say, well, I got to ask Muhammad Ali one question. He gave me a great quote. I put it in my story. I also met George Foreman, Evander Holyfield, and um, George Foreman during those Olympics. So, I mean, I've had a lot of um, opportunities to to interview um, some greats. And I guess we could talk about it later. I've, you know, been able to um, interview Michael Jordan as well. So, um, I really enjoy doing that. And, you know, Serena Williams and Venus Williams, two of the all-time greats in tennis. I I built my book, Different Strokes, around them and their success. So, I've really been um, blessed to interview some of the greats in, in sports
1: history. So, um, if you had to choose between an actual sport, which sport do you um, admire the most? Which one did you, you know, gives you the most um, out of your, your, your writings, as far as like sports-wise, which sport do you gravitate to the most? What's your strongest um, sport that you like to write about the most? The
0: sport I grew up watching the most was baseball and rooting for the Yankees but over the years i've come to really enjoy interviewing tennis players i really enjoy that i found tennis first on tv and then at the us open and i enjoy like the the individual competition the battle on on the court one on one or two on two if it's a doubles match but i can tell you i enjoy most sports i mean I used to cover the NBA. I used to cover the Indiana Pacers for the Indianapolis Star. I enjoyed that. I used to cover hockey. One of the few black uh, writers who covered hockey full time. I covered the Carolina Hurricanes for the NHL, and that was fun. And um, so baseball is what I really wanted to do first because that was my favorite sport growing up. But being able to branch out was was a lot of fun.
1: Okay so um i want to get into the um your different strokes serena and venus uh, book okay Could you uh, give me um some insight on what prompted you to, to write this book um have you ever met them i have and could you like give us like details about this book
0: okay um it's my second book on tennis i wrote a book on tennis in 2007 and this new book different strokes Uh, picks up where the other book left off because there have been really profound changes in the sport since then. When the first book came out 13 years ago, Serena had seven major titles. She was a superstar, future Hall of Famer, but she has since become an icon. She now has 23 major titles, more than any other player, male or female in the open era. That's since 1968 when tennis became a professional sport. So she's taken her game to such a high level And Venus also has seven major titles. So when you combine those two sisters who came straight out of Compton to professional tennis and they've become the most successful sibling act in the history of sports. I mean, and they still don't get as much credit as they should. I think it's a combination of women's sports not getting the coverage it deserves and them being successful black women that they haven't received quite as much recognition as they should. I think if there was a, you know, two men who were brothers and became number one and number two in the world in their sport, that would get more attention than what Serena and Venus have had. So I really wanted to go back and take a look at their career and and tell their story from when they were brought up by their parents, they were taken out of junior tennis at a young age because there's a lot of cronyism in junior tennis. Sometimes if there's, say, a field of 32 girls, and the the Williams sisters are the only two black girls, they could have them play each other in the first round where one knocks out the other. So there's no way they can play for the championship. And there's a lot of backbiting among tennis parents. So um, Venus and Serena's parents took them out of junior tennis and basically had them practice against each other, brought in some experienced coaches, and they both turned pro when they were 14. And by the time they were 17, 18 years old, they were established stars in the sport. And they both came up in professional tennis in the 1990s. Here we are in 2020, and they're still great players, especially Serena, who's got, again, 23 major titles, more than any other player in the open era. So I wanted to give them their due, tell their story, and My subtitle is Serena Venus and the Unfinished Black Tennis Revolution because I point out throughout the book how the Williams sisters have been very successful on the court, but there still aren't enough opportunities for black people in tennis off the court. There aren't enough black umpires, aren't enough black tennis referees or tennis officials, aren't enough black broadcasters or writers or coaches or agents. And that has to be the next step. There have to be more opportunities for blacks in tennis off the court. So I I get into the business of tennis as well. It's a $5.5 billion a year industry and black people aren't getting enough of that cut
1: when it comes to tennis careers. So what do you think um, Venus and Serena's impact on the sport is today? Um, Knowing that, you know, going into this sport, the odds were against them just because of the color of their skin and their gender.
0: Yeah, no, no doubt about it. They have become elder states women in the sport. They both came up as teenagers, but Venus will turn 40 next month. Serena will turn 39 in September. And they've influenced two generations of young women to play the sport, especially young women of color. Um, Sloan Stevens, a Black player who won the U.S. Open in 2017, influenced by the Williams sisters. Madison Key is another prominent player of color, influenced by the Williams sisters. And here today, there are teenagers like Coco Gauff. People may have seen her at the U.S. Open last year get through to the, um, the third round when she was only 15. Now she's 16, and she looks like a future star. And these young women of color wouldn't be playing the sport if it weren't for the example set by Venus and Serena. So they've revolutionized their sport because they brought more speed, more power, more athleticism, harder hitting to women's tennis. They've made it a more exciting game to watch. And it's no accident that because of the Williams sisters, uh, CBS, when they had the rights to the U S open, they put it on in prime time for the first time in 2001 because it was clear by then that Venus and Serena were the two best players in the world and that they would likely play each other in the final. And that became the first prime time U.S. Open final in history. And it got a higher rating than Notre Dame versus Nebraska in college football when they were both powerhouses. So it just goes to show what global stars, the Williams sisters became first national stars here, then global superstars. And, yeah since tennis is such a global sport, these two black sisters who grew up in Compton have become sports icons, and it's, it's a really an inspiring story, and they continue to inspire young girls in particular to play tennis.
1: If a, um, like I say, someone that's aspiring to find their niche in sports and they, they picked up your book, like a, um, you know, a kid picked up your book what incentive do they see in your book to make them think that they able, they're going to be able to make it, um, in this sport?
0: Well, I think they can look at the examples, uh, set by uh, Venus and Serena who was with great support from their parents, a, a great support system there. And I think we've seen that played out with other players on uh, Naomi Osaka, who's, um, the daughter of a Haitian man and a Japanese woman, um, Naomi Osaka's parents used the same blueprint as the Williams sisters to get her into tennis. Basically they limited her involvement in junior tennis, her and her sister who also plays um, professional tennis, Mari Osaka, and basically they used the Williams family blueprint to turn their daughter into a professional player and she is now a two-time Grand Slam champion. And uh, Coco Gauff's parents Coco's mother was a college athlete in track and field and her father played college basketball. So they didn't have the real tennis background either, just like the Williams sister's parents didn't have a strong tennis background, but initially they used tennis books and videotapes and DVDs to teach themselves enough about the game so they can teach their daughters. So now Coco Goff is on the verge of becoming a superstar. So that model has worked for, um, the young girls who aspire to play tennis, I think it could also work for young men. Now, don't get me wrong; tennis is an expensive sport. You have to be able to, you know, find good coaching, and at a cost that's affordable. But if you can find good coaching at an affordable cost, it's a sport where you can really do very well.
1: Yeah, I me personally, um, I started kind of like looking at t- the the sport tennis. I've never really played it, but I had um I read a book that the the great Kobe Bryant had wrote. Mm-hmm. I'm a I'm a big Laker Kobe fan. Okay. Um, so but um I had ran across a book that he wrote and he had transitioned into just talking about all kinds of different sports and tennis had came up and I had you know, I was like looking up all things Kobe and the book was called Legacy and the Queen. Have you heard of that book? I have not. Yeah. So it's about a, as a fictional book. It's about a, um, a little young girl that grew up in an orphanage. She helped uh, run an orphanage with her father. And she picked up the tennis because her mother was a tennis player, a great tennis player. And she was trying to, um, you know, basically do something with the sport tennis, but she ran an orphanage with her father. So they kind of, you know, hindered her from, you know, doing you know, bigger things that she wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So um, an opportunity came about later on in the book for her to compete in this national tournament um, against the queen. Well, and, and she wanted to go do it, but her daddy was reluctant to letting her go because he was older and he needed her to help him run the orphanage. And he really had an underlying reason. It wasn't just that it was because her mother had gone off and ran off to this um mysterious land, and she stayed there and she he thought that if she went that same direction, he would lose his daughter mm. um so she went on and defied her father and went to the the did the national tournament and she actually won and it was a um it was some money involved where she was able to actually help fund the orphanage for years to come with that money she um won with the orphanage and it was talking about how she had to you know change a rack and she had to do this and you know different things like that and she had to summon some kind of um powers which they call uh, grana and the grana she had um was supposed to help her um win the matches because it was um her fear that would actually Help her persevere in the matches. Mm-hmm. It's a really good book. It's called Legacy and the Queen, and I, and I and I and that's the that's the only time I've ever looked at the sport tennis because, you know, like you said, it just didn't seem like a a, a sport like um you know men gravitate to. You know, when I got grew up, I was really you know football, basketball, you know the normal stuff. Um, you know I you know Hollywood. You know I played a little baseball here and there, but tennis was like not not a sport that I was. Um, you know, that I gravitated to, but, you know, reading that book and picking up that book then i mean, I'll think sports is, is, is very interesting. If you really lock in and, you know, want to try to uh, learn something different, you know, you know, if anything, you're retraining the brain to, to process new information to try to do certain things, because I'm pretty sure it's a really technical sport. Really um, have to really, it's a really thinking sport because you had a small fuzzy ball and you have to be able to, you know, hit the ball and, you know, try to, you know, get points from the other player. So it's a lot of things that um, if you're trying to learn something different for anything, it's, it's, you know, processing, the brain is actually processing something new and new information to be able to learn something different than just normal Mm -hmm. stuff that you, you know, normally gravitated to.
0: Yeah, I think of tennis as an athletic form of chess. You really have to think about your moves, what shot to play, when to play it, and that's why I really enjoy watching the Williams sisters. They've brought a lot more excitement to the sport. Uh, it's a thinking person's sport, and it, it's interesting you mentioned Kobe Bryant because he was at the U.S. Open uh, last year, watching a couple of matches in Serena Williams's box. So that that was really an interesting combination and. Uh, Naomi Osaka, who I mentioned earlier, she had a chance to sit next to Kobe at one of the Laker games uh, last season, and she has
1: tweeted about that. So he was definitely in, into tennis. Right. That's And that's what – that book, you can just tell that he – because he wrote the book, and it was narrated by Felissa Rashad. Okay. And it's so – and I, I like to listen to the narration because it has, like, a lot of dramatization in it. It's, uh-huh. it's really like a like a teen book kind of, but it, it looks like it's a little advanced, uh-huh. um, just kind of like the verbiage that we're using in there. But it's a really, really good book. Like he was writing children's book. Like I don't want to get too far into that because I still get kind of okay. emotional when it comes to, um, you know, talking about Kobe. Uh, but I do want to um, transition to uh, another topic. Um, now we did speak briefly uh, when I when, you know, through our emails when we was talking a little bit and you say you was um, watching the last dance and you had an yeah. interesting story um, about uh, you covering the wizards game when Michael Jordan actually came out of retirement to play for the wizards. Could you take me uh, through that experience and um, you know, how you felt about that and um, how often did you actually get a chance to cover uh, Michael Jordan's games? <laughs>
0: Well, I was a baseball beat writer in 1996, when I was in Chicago covering a Yankees White Sox series. My sports editor called me from New York, where the paper is based, and he said, would you like to stay in Chicago for an extra couple of days to write a sidebar on the Knicks-Bulls playoff game? Now, for those who don't know about the newspaper industry, the sidebar is like the number two story. The, The beat writer will write the main story about the game. The sidebar is like the number two story and you get to pick what you want to write about for, for the sidebar. So I had never seen Michael Jordan play in person. I grew up a Knicks fan, but I couldn't hate Michael Jordan. Because he was just so great. I loved watching him play. And it would have been, this would have been the first time I could watch Michael Jordan from a courtside seat in an NBA game. And it was a playoff game against the Knicks. So I told my sports that I want to stay here in Chicago two more days and Watch Jordan write the sidebar. So that was in 1996. Jordan killed the Knicks that night. The Bulls won. They went on to win the series. And that was the first time I saw him play in person. And it was even more exciting being um, the old Chicago Stadium. They now play across the street at the United Center, but it was a Chicago Stadium at the time. And just to watch Jordan doing his thing was so exciting. And I thought that that would be the only time I got to see Jordan in person because I was primarily covering baseball at the time. Years later, I went to Indianapolis to cover the Indiana Pacers, 2001 and 2002. Jordan, you remember, came out of retirement in 2000 to become the president of basketball operations for the Washington Wizards. They didn't have a great year. And I'm sure he figured, well, if I play, they'll do even better. So he came out of retirement at the age of 38 for the 2001 2002 season and the first time they played in indiana was on thanksgiving night 2001 huge sellout crowd and they loved the pieces in indiana but everyone was excited to see jordan he got a bigger ovation than everybody but he was 38 years old he wasn't jordan in his prime At 38, he was primarily a jump shooter. When his jump shot was on, he could still get 20 to 25 a night. But that night, his jump shot was off. He shot two for 10 and finished with six points. And that was the first time in his legendary career that he failed to score in double figures. And that was the second time I was at courtside to watch him. So I saw Jordan at his best in 96 and then Jordan at the end of his career in 2001.
1: And that's a, a awesome experience to have. Um, so looking at those those two games and from, from a writer's perspective, seeing him in his best and then seeing him in, in that Washington Wizards uniform, do you think that Jordan should have made that leap to come out of retirement so late and so much time off in his career? Do you think that hurt him any way to come out of retirement and you know, register that um, six points that game and, you know, have that on his resume.
0: You know, I I worried about it at the time, Corey. I thought it would hurt his legacy a bit because he clearly wasn't the player he used to be. But I think most people have forgotten that he played for the Washington Wizards. (laughs) And I know that the ESPN um, program, the the last dance has uh, four more episodes to go. Right. I don't believe they're going to mention the Washington Wizards years at all. I think they're going to end it with Jordan winning his sixth championship, their second P in 1998. I think that's how they're gonna end it. And I think that's how they should end it, with Jordan at the top. Because not only was Jordan not the player he used to be with Washington, you may remember he got fired from the position of president. Right after. Right after that, because he was responsible for drafting a player named Kwame Brown. Kwame Brown, yep. With the number one pick a high school player out of Georgia, who I interviewed, very nice guy, interviewed his mother, great family, but Kwame Brown just didn't make it. And once I saw him in the NBA, he was seven feet tall, but shied away from contact, was not physical, didn't play like a big man. And that was the player Michael Jordan picked with the number one pick. And it really set the Wizards franchise back. So on and off the court, Jordan's association with the Washington Wizards didn't help his legacy and it's probably a good thing for him that most people have forgotten those years they just kind of put them out of out of their mind when they think of Jordan they think of his success at North Carolina in college and they definitely think of his legendary career with the Chicago Bulls
1: (laughs) correct now um I remember that that season and you know right after that they they fired him yeah. And then he, um, you know, kind of resurfaced back, you know, whenever um, Bob Johnson bought the Bobcats. Mm-hmm. And then um, he ended up, you know, investing into that. And then Bob Johnson stepped down and then he was became the majority owner of the Bobcats. And then he changed them back to the Charlotte Hornets. Right. So from, from my perspective, he hasn't had a really great career when it came to being an NBA exec because it's- the the Charlotte Hornets as you know they have been, you know, perennial losers as well. Um they haven't really made playoffs. They, you know, drafted great people. They they've um had uh people to come in that was good like Kimball Walker. Right. I, I was a big Kimball Walker fan. That was the only guy that that they had that was like actually really, you know, decent. That's right. And everybody else has been, you know, pretty much pedestrian. And so how do you feel about Michael Jordan, the exec versus Michael Jordan, the player?
0: Michael Jordan, the executive has not been successful. You're right. Uh, it would be a mistake to try to argue all oh, it's because of this, it's because of that. It's Michael Jordan. He didn't make a good draft picks with the Washington wizards. That's why I got fired. Now he's running the Charlotte Hornets. He's owning it and they're not a good franchise. And Charles Barkley, who does his commentary now on TNT, he went off on Jordan fairly recently saying that Jordan hires too many yes men, too many people who are kind of intimidated by him, not the kind of people who will say, Boss, you're wrong about this. And Barkley has argued that Jordan doesn't hire good people to advise him on players to get coaches to hire. And they may. Maybe a lot of truth to that because the results haven't been there. If you look at, say, what Jerry West, who's the logo of the NBA, all right, a great player for the Lakers, but also a very success, successful executive with the Lakers for all those years, and then an advisor with the Golden State Warriors. There have been great players who have become great executives. Uh, Michael Jordan, phenomenal player, but unsuccessful with the Wizards. And the Hornets. You know, it just it just has to be said. And Barkley may be right. He may need to, as owner, hire a really competent, um, strong general manager who can build a team and just kind of stay out of the way and let him do it the way I mean, Jerry West was allowed to build the Lakers.
1: Right. From for me, the the way I look at it. And just thinking about Michael Jordan and his personality, his competitive nature and things like that, do you really think that Jordan would actually hire somebody that would actually challenge his authority? Because he's he's too much of a competitor. He's really strong-minded. And it's almost a demise of why he's not, you know, successful as an exec. Because if he had, you know, people are intimidated by that. And you know he has these yes men. These are these are people. Their pockets are aligned with what they do for him. Yeah. And so if they felt that they, they that he's making the wrong decision, he's they're not gonna you know challenge him and say that because they might be in fear for losing their career. You know, you think about some of the things that you know a lot of people that may have been impacted by you know crossing Jordan the wrong way. He he has enemies. In the NBA and not in the NBA, you know, they probably last 30 years. Mm-hmm. Like the Isaiah Thomas situation, I was looking at that. Like, yeah. he doesn't talk to Isaiah Thomas at all. And it's been, you know, all these years later. Yeah. Um, you know, you think about Craig Hodges. He lost his career because he challenged Jordan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so how do you feel about that?
0: Well, you make excellent points, and I should – remind uh, your listeners, I know you know this, that when Jordan came back with the Washington Wizards and played that game against the Indiana Pacers and scored only six points, and I was covering the Pacers, the head coach of the Pacers at the time was Isaiah Thomas. And all my years there, my two years there, I tried to get Isaiah to open up for me to kind of tell me what went down with Jordan. Do you believe, as most people do, that Isaiah, you were not on the Dream Team in 1992 because Jordan didn't want you on the team. And Isaiah would refuse to go there, wouldn't talk about it. I don't know if it's going to, they, they briefly mentioned the dream team, but, you know, you don't hear Isaiah saying, I believe I was left off the team because Jordan didn't want me. That's what is widely believed, but you don't hear I, Isaiah say it. But, but your point about Jordan being strong-willed and competitive and probably believing, oh, I'm, I'm just as smart as anybody I would hire as general manager or smarter than anybody I would hire as team president. So I'm still going to make the decisions. I'm still going to make the calls on the draft picks and the free agents and the trades, but it's not working. So, you know, maybe it's a faint hope, but at some point, maybe Jordan will just hire somebody and say, okay, I'll give you a, a, a year to do it your way, we'll see where we stand at, at the end of the year. But maybe he'll never do that. Maybe he'll always believe I should be calling the shots. And that may be the thing that prevents him from ever being a successful basketball executive and owner.
1: Yeah, that, that might be um, the the nail in the coffin when you think about that topic. Because if you think about, you know you know, just not even just Jordan or anything like that. If you think about Um, you know people being successful you know people network and talk to other people that you know get ideas but if you think you would know you know everything about this you the smartest person you everything begins and ends with you and your decision I mean how can you be successful
0: yeah let me ask you this because you're in the, the the Dallas area Jerry Jones owns the Dallas Cowboys but he insists on also being the general manager and the Cowboys have not won a Super Bowl since, I believe, 1996. That's right. 24 years. Jerry Jones has been making decisions as to who the coach should be, who the free agents they should go after, who they should draft, how, what the team should look like. Clearly, they're not winning Super Bowls. Is it? Do you see a similarity
1: with what Jerry Jones is doing with Dallas? I do, but if you think about it, you you know you're you you smart man Jerry is a businessman first mm-hmm. and foremost so those years of him winning super bowls his focus was was different mm-hmm. the, the Dallas Cowboys are the most profitable organization in North American sports period
0: mm-hmm.
1: like if you think about it like they're the, they're the most marketable team ever large in part large part because of that fabulous stadium he has built correct well, they have so, major events of all kinds in that, in that all kinds. So, his focus is not particularly winning football, they can lose all the football games. He's still, you know, profiting from the Dallas Cowboy, just you know, that star. Uh-huh. So, um, I, I do see the similarities, but his focus is a lot different. You know, Jordan probably do want to win basketball games, but. Jerry, so not so much. I don't because you think like you think. Look, look at some of the things. Why is the 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 Dak Prescott deal has not gotten done? If he's your guy, this is your mm-hmm. guy. This is who you you drafted, mm-hmm. and you saying all these great things in the media about him. But we're not seeing that when you when when we talk about you know paying this man. Yeah, we we want us, you know you know you if you love me, you know show me. And the way you show somebody you love them is with you know the money, That's and right. and I like how Dak is handling. It. I do. I at first I didn't. I was like man, like Dak is really you know a you know kind of a mediocre quarterback to me. He's not you know a, a superstar. He's getting there, but he's not there yet. Yeah. But he hasn't allowed Jerry to you know basically try to you know muscle him to to sign his contract or get too close to jerry jones he's basically letting the agent you know talk for him but i think the agents maybe may be in over his head because they wouldn't you know got a guy uh from cincinnati to ramp these talks up because now people are talking about he might be you know transitioning to andy dalton if they can't get dak to go ahead and sign
0: yeah, I was looking at that too. Dalton, not a PCU, was already already lives in the Dallas area. Right. And, right. And you know, he used to take the Bengals to the playoffs. They would then lose, but at least Dalton has taken teams to the playoffs. So that could be leverage used against Dak at some point.
1: I think Dak has, you know, maybe when they did that, has lost almost mm-hmm. all his leverage. I, mm-hmm. I I do believe that because um, Andy has been an established quarterback for nine seasons he's been to the playoffs he knows um how to win football games and you have you know Dak here which he's not he doesn't have that that on his resume you know many multiple playoff games he got that he has playoff game, but you know with Andy Dalton I feel like they have that security blanket if these talks go south yeah I I I do believe that I
0: think you're reading it well. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So back to, um, I know we kind of bounced around a little bit, but I want to go back to um, Isaiah Thomas. Okay. Now I I did, um, I saw another um, interview he had with, I believe Stephen A. Smith um, on his show. And I think they talked a little bit about the Jordan situation. And, you are absolutely right. He still to this day really won't say out and say, Jordan is the reason why I didn't make that dream team. Yeah. And in so many words, Jordan wouldn't, um, agree to it either. He wouldn't, you know, basically come out and say that I'm the reason that Isaiah wasn't, he said it was other people. Yeah. That you know didn't want to play with Isaiah or this and this and that. From your perspective, you know you've covered you know the game, yeah. you know about you know a certain distinct about the situation. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Jordan had the biggest voice. He had the he had the influence of everyone on that team. Now he might not have been the the person that was directly the reason why he wasn't on the team. But he he had a bigger piece of the reason why he wasn't on the team. What are your thoughts? I think if
0: Jordan wanted Isaiah to be on that team, Isaiah would have been on the team. I look at, to this day, the group shot of the Dream Team in 1992, and I always say, what is Christian Leitner doing in that picture? He was the only one they took from college and put on that team. And he basically didn't play until they had already blown the other country out. And they had 30 right. points ahead, 35 points ahead. Okay, Leighton, and go out there. That was, I believe that was Isaiah Thomas's spot. And in my years as a beat writer with the Pacers and seeing Isaiah every day, and Isaiah would say, don't go there. He would just smile and kind of smile as, you know, don't go there. I'm not going to get into that. But I really believe that Isaiah Thomas would have been on that team and it would have been all NBA stars, not 11 NBA stars and a college player. And it, I believe it was because Jordan didn't want Isaiah on the team. And it goes back to the Pistons walking off the court and not shaking hands with the Bulls, even though when the Pistons beat the Bulls, Jordan and his teammates shook the Pistons' hands. yeah. It was poor sportsmanship, but I think if Jordan were willing to overlook that and say, hey, Isaiah is one of the best players in the NBA. We've got all these other NBA superstars on this team. Isaiah should be here. Then Isaiah would have been there.
1: I I do agree with you on that because even in the uh, Last Dance documentary, um, he basically said that. I, I, you know, he, he had Magic Johnson as, you know, the you know the best point guard. But then he said Isaiah was right behind him. And if you look at Isaiah's resume, he fit the criteria to be on the team. Definitely. If you think about, you know, his accomplishments, you know, a champion. He's won MVPs, All-Star. Yep,
0: that's
1: right.
0: The second point guard on that team, as you remember, was John Stockton. Now, John Stockton, Hall of Fame career fine passer but Isaiah
1: goes ahead of John Stockton of course without a doubt without a doubt you know uh,
0: Isaiah would have been on that team and and Stockton would have been the guy who basically didn't play unless it was a until it was a blowout let me put it that way right and you know Leitner's on the team just you know USA basketball spun it oh we want to um, basically, honor Leitner's great career. Duke Leitner didn't belong on that team. And e- even Leitner knows he didn't belong on that team. But it was, let's say, political. Okay. Jordan doesn't want Isaiah. So let's spin it in a more positive way and say we're giving a college star a chance to be on this all time great team. But that really should have been Isaiah Thomas's spot. And I got to know Isaiah well when I was covering the team. I really felt bad for him because if you remember, Isaiah did qualify for the 1980 US Olympic team, but President Jimmy Carter boycotted those Olympics because they were in Moscow. So Isaiah should have been on the 1980 team. We didn't send a team to Moscow. 12 years later, Isaiah should have been on the dream team. And I believe if Jordan had said, I I have no problem with Isaiah on the team. I won't talk to him. I don't want to be photographed with him, but I don't have any problem with him on the team. If he had said that, then Isaiah would have been on the team.
1: I, I so, so we're basically on the same wavelength with this. I mean, now I wasn't, you know, then 92, I wasn't, you know, old enough to remember, but, you know, just listening to, you know, certain things and um, watching the last dance. Mm-hmm. Jordan could have easily said that he wanted Isaiah on the team and he would have been on the team. Now mm-hmm. if he didn't if he didn't say anything or didn't, you know, buckle down on it, he didn't want to want him on the team, you had Magic Johnson on there. I know for sure Magic Johnson didn't want him on the team. Cause they had problems then. Larry Bird, he had problems with Larry Bird. I know Larry Bird wouldn't want him on the team. So it's just seems like it just seems like really fishy. But Jordan, we both agree, had the biggest voice and he could have um influenced Isaiah's spot on that team. Yeah. We can we can agree on that.
0: Yeah, I I agree. It's an amazing it, it, team, but there's just one it's
1: like
0: the segment that you know when Sesame Street was on, you watch it as a kid, they had the segment, which doesn't belong and why? You know, an apple, an orange, a grape, yeah. and a shoe. Like like which doesn't belong. Christian Leitner as fine a career as he had to do. Christian Laettner did not belong on the dream team, and that was Isaiah Thomas's spot. And I tried hard to, you know, get Isaiah to give me a, a quote like that. I wanted to basically break that story when I was covering the Pacers, but Isaiah wouldn't go there. And he still pulls his punches when he's asked about it. Of course, but, yeah. You know, 28 years later, he knows he should have been on the most legendary team ever assembled. And because of personality conflicts, and mainly the alpha on that team, Michael Jordan, not saying, hey, I don't care if Isaiah's on the team, but he... Probably made it known to USA Basketball. I don't want him there, and that outweighed perhaps Magic Johnson saying I don't want him around. Or Larry Bird. Bird, you remember Bird was toward the end of his career in he's that bad
1: back. <laughs> yeah,
0: so Bird didn't have a lot of say. You know, he big name, but not the Larry Bird of the nineteen eighties. So even though he, I'm sure, I had problems with Isaiah going back to the Celtics Pistons rivalry, but it was the voice of Jordan that carried the most weight.
1: Let's play a little devil's advocate a little bit. You remember when Jordan's first all-star game, he played with all those guys, Magic, and, you know, Isaiah was out there. They didn't want to pass on the ball. Yeah,
0: I, I heard that that story. I remember asking Isaiah about that, too. Isaiah denied that. I vaguely remember the game, but I've read a lot of stories on it, and the word is, we don't want that kid Jordan who's getting all this attention – to be the MVP, so let's freeze him out. I've heard for years that people say Isaiah was behind that. Isaiah told me that's not true. And it would be interesting, And you know, with sports being completely shut down, Corey, if one of the networks, maybe they already have NBA TV or ABC, ESPN, show the tape of that All-Star game. So kind of watch how it flows to see if they're icing Jordan. Because, you know, you'd notice it.
1: Yeah, it well, it's be very glaring. You'd be able to see that.
0: I, yeah, I, I would like to see a tape of that All-Star game because you you know when they're sharing the ball with somebody and when they're not. And the, the story was that Isaiah didn't want Jordan, the rookie, to come in. He was already getting so much attention, and they didn't want him to be the All-Star MVP.
1: Yeah, if you think about, um, you know, kind of look at the um, the points, I think he only had like 12 points. Mm-hmm. In that in the first All Star game, he didn't really have a lot of points, and you just think about him signing that big massive Nike deal, and mm-hmm. we and you know just to, I I do want to get into that, but um just all the the different um the press he was getting and you know the the adulation he was getting as a rookie, right? They didn't want to you know they they didn't open up you know open up to him like that because when he came in he 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 admired them he wasn't like he was you know the Jordan we see now he was more so trying to fit in with them yeah yeah and it's interesting
0: to, when he talked about that the early chicago bulls like like the cocaine use and all that he didn't speak out about that cuz you don't speak out about that at the time you don't rat on your teammates you don't snitch but yeah he was just trying to fit in as a rookie with the bulls he saw things that he clearly did not like about how they were carrying on but he didn't speak up about it. And you're right, he wanted to be accepted by Isaiah, Bird, Magic, all the all stars of, of that era. And they just froze him out.
1: Yeah. So, they and, say. so I guess, and, and so it's not a stretch for us to say that he left Isaiah off their dream team. It's not. It's not.
0: <laughs> 28 years later. And, it's and interesting. Then, how do yeah. you feel uh, about the Pistons not? shaking hands with the Bulls, and you know how they set it up on the last dance They showed when the Pistons beat the Bulls in that Game 7, when Scottie Pippen basically took himself out of the game and said he had a headache, and, you know, the Pistons won Game 7, and you see Jordan shaking hands with Isaiah and Lambeer and Dumars and all the, the Pistons players, but then when the tables are turned and the Bulls are sweeping the Pistons, that the Pistons just walk off the court no eye contact no acknowledgement if that had not happened i have to believe isaiah would have been on the dream
1: team of course oh, i think horace grant had the world famous quote in that in that uh last dance doc when he when he called them some straight up bees <laughs> i mean like if you think about it like this that's the manly thing to do like yeah. all sports when if you have a loser, or whatever, you, if you look at even literally, they line up and they shake hands. That's right. They get in a the line, they single file out and they shake hands. Good game, good game, good game. And then you, before the game is even over, you're hot it to the locker room. Don't make any eye contact. Like, and, and Jordan, even. Even 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 um during the um the time when he had lost, they did a, they had a microphone in his face and he was doing a um interview about losing. That's right. Yeah. I was like, wow. And they couldn't even give you know them the satisfaction to even say, you know, a great game, um nothing. They didn't say anything. They didn't shake hands, they didn't, you know, even make eye contact. I mean like and Isaiah, you know, said that he wasn't you know, that wasn't you know the intent, but you're the leader. You're the point guard.
0: Yeah, he was the leader. He could have set the tone and said, to him, We're gonna shake hands, we're gonna show class. They beat us just like we beat them. You don't have to like them. You can still hate them, but you shake hands, you congratulate them, then you leave the court. And I think if it had been handled that way, Isaiah would have been on the greatest team ever assembled. So the guy who was left off the greatest team.
1: Right, correct. Now over the years, for me, I had, like I said, I, I gravitated towards Kobe Bryant. You know, I liked how he played. I liked his his game. Um, but when I was younger, I would, you know, watch Jordan games. But as I grew older, I kind of started, you know, not really liking some of the things I would see and hear about you know, Michael Jordan. And I'm going to go to a certain place and, and I I just want to see what your thought process is with it because, you know, just looking at, you know, your book and you was, you know, talking about um, the impact on, you know, Serena and Venus on, um, you know, Blacks breaking into tennis and mm-hmm. their impact of being women and things like that. So I want to take you to um, another part in the documentary. And this is another reason why i feel the way i feel about michael jordan when it comes to social issues when it comes to our people now there was a thing it was a 1990 u.s senate race in north you know in north carolina between the incumbent republican jesse helms and his democratic challenger harvey gantt in the documentary and jordan did not which he didn't have to endorse Mm-hmm. um harvey gantt how did you feel about that because i'm pretty sure you probably remember when it happened right i do remember I do. so remember. how did so how did you feel about that how did you feel about you know you know rehashing that in the last dance documentary
0: i'm glad they brought it up because i'm sure a lot of people didn't know that about jordan yeah it happened 30 years ago but it's relevant i mean we didn't have any black senators at the time harvey gant had a really good chance he was the mayor of charlotte very popular he had a chance to unseat a stone cold racist jesse helms in 1990 but because jordan chose not to endorse him and i wish jordan would have tested the theory instead he says um you know republicans buy sneakers too so whether he was joking or not it sends a message that it's more important to him to be liked by white consumers who buy shoes than it is to endorse a black candidate for the Senate. There's no guarantee that white people would have turned against him if he had endorsed him. I mean, I remember in 2008, people were shocked when Oprah Winfrey endorsed Barack Obama for president. People thought, oh, Oprah, you're going to lose your popularity. She didn't. She just came out and said, I, no, Barack Obama is someone who, I, who should be president of the United States. That's something that America needs. a uh, First black president, a young man who was you know, energetic, has bright ideas, can take the country in a direction that I think is best for all of us. I'm going to endorse him. Oprah stepped out of her comfort zone and for the first time ever endorsed someone for president and happened to be the first major party Black candidate. It did not hurt her at all. Not at all. Back to 1990, Jordan, I think, assumed that white people would turn against him if he endorsed Harvey Gantt. Not if you can make a strong case for Harvey Gantt the way Oprah made a strong case for Barack Obama. It's not just about race if you're telling people why you're endorsing this person. And it's interesting too, Corey, that Jordan refused to get involved in that 1990 Senate race, but his former coach at North Carolina, a white man, Dean Smith, had no problem endorsing Harvey
1: Gantt. Overall, how do you feel about Michael Jordan not endorsing Harvey Gantt? as a, I wish, do, I you, do you separate? Do
0: Still love watching him as a player, but I was disappointed in him in him 30 years ago when he refused to get involved. And, and I say that, you know, not knowing what would happen 18 years later when Oprah, the most popular person on TV at that time, out of her comfort zone and got involved in a political race by making an endorsement and then a lot of people followed her lead remember and okay oprah's endorsed him i'm down with him too stevie wonder a lot of other people came out right after that i think i i wish jordan had challenged that well had not assumed that white people would be against him and there would be some sort of backlash and that nike sales would drop if he said something political I wish she had been courageous enough to say um you know I think we need a black man in the United States Senate we didn't we didn't have one at the time and here's a a man Harvey Gann, who had a record in Charlotte Jordan could talk about his political record not just say I'm in, not say oh I'm endorsing him because he's black nobody says that <laughs> you know nobody, when you're endorsing somebody nobody says that you look at their record and you talk about what you think this person would do in a higher office and that's why you're endorsing him it, it was disappointing that that Jordan did that because i i think um i i think of that and i think of how you know tiger woods is not political and how other athletes have chosen to be apolitical probably following Jordan's lead when one of these athletes needs to stand up the way Muhammad Ali used to stand up. It didn't hurt him. I mean, they took boxing away from him for three and a half years, but he was always popular and beloved all over the world. When I was at the 1996 Olympics, mean, white people, men, women, and children, just crying. Just, Muhammad Ali just walked by them and waved at them, smiled at them. Nobody held... nobody held it against Ali that he refused to fight in the Vietnam War because he had nothing against the Viet Cong. He took a stand, a principled political stand. And while boxing was taken away from him for three and a half years, his popularity only increased. He he became more beloved around the world. And I wish 30 years ago, Jordan had said, well, I'm going to endorse this man based on what I think of Harvey Gantz political positions and how I think he would be right for North Carolina. And if people don't like it, they don't like it. But Jordan might've won even more fans
1: if he had endorsed Hart again. Right. For, for me, Cecil, it was hard for me to be able to separate that because not even this, that situation, it was another, it was other situation that I, I had followed too you know, just growing up and, you know, seeing certain things. I had even stopped buying Jordan shoes after I, you know, found out some, some things that I did find out. Um, There was a, you know, thing going on when I was growing up where people were killing each other over his shoes and he never said a word about it. Yeah.
0: I remember that period very well when people were getting killed for their, their Air Jordans, they would come out with a new style every year and you know, kids line up around the block, it still happens. I mean, it there was still happens. Recently, when going against all the social distancing that we're told to do now, stand at least six feet away from each other, they showed scenes of kids that couldn't wait for the new Air Jordans to come out there just in a crush, like, you know, violating all social distancing rules. So it, it, They're still phenomenally popular, but it would have been important for him to say, now these are just shoes. You know, don't You shouldn't want anything that much to kill somebody for it. and Yeah, it's it's really unfortunate that he didn't make public comments about that and still hasn't because, you know, you still hear the odd story every now and then about someone, there was a story of a girl in Brooklyn, New York who was beaten up by a group of kids and they took her Air Jordans off her feet. So these things unfortunately still happen.
1: And it's it's really sad that we haven't evolved as a people, and you know, in this country, you know, we're already at a disadvantage, mm-hmm. and you know, we're killing each other over truth. and yeah. the the powers to be are looking at us, and you know, saying that we don't have to do anything. They're just killing killing each other. You know, we don't have to do anything. We're you know watching these um, blacks kill each other, and they're basically helping our our, our agenda anyway. Mm, that's, that, right. that, that, that's pretty much how I look at it and, and, mm-hmm. and see it. You know, we I would like to um, see, I would like to have seen Jordan um, take a more active approach when it came to being, you know, an activist, or, you know, just because of his platform. And yeah, yeah, sure I think it damages good. his legacy a bit, to me. Mm-hmm. I understand.
0: I understand. Yeah, I, I, again, I think Tiger Woods followed in his footsteps when he was you know, came on the golf scene in the late 90s. And apolitical, but even more so now we find out that he's friends with Donald Trump and plays golf with him. And that's pretty much why Trump gave Tiger Woods the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And Serena Williams, who has done more in tennis than Tiger Woods has done in golf, She has not received any presidential honor because Trump knows that Serena Williams doesn't respect him. He, Trump, takes care of his friends. Tiger Woods is a golfing buddy of Trump. So Woods gets the highest civilian honor, but Serena Williams, who I can definitely argue convincingly, is more deserving of the highest civilian honor because of her accomplishments in tennis. And she has built schools for black girls and boys in Africa. She has a venture capitalist firm that specifically targets women and men of color because it's harder for women and men of color to get small business loans from banks. So her company, I write about it in the book, Serena Ventures, provides startup capital for women and men of color to start their own businesses. These are things that she's doing. There's nothing like that on Tiger Woods' resume.
1: Not at all. He didn't. He doesn't even identify himself as being black. That's right.
0: That's right.
1: Do <laughs> you remember that?
0: <laughs> Kabbalan-Asian, He made up that
1: word. Yeah. Like what in the world is that? <laughs> yeah. It's it's really disheartening to see. You know, when one one of us make it and and then we forget where we come from. Yeah. So I I don't get. I didn't get into
0: this in the book, but. If there's a change in administration on election day, and let's say Biden comes in, who already says he's going to have a woman vice president, and it could well be a black woman, Kamala Harris, who came out of Howard University. She's now in the United States Senate from California. Maybe then, Serena and Venus, maybe they get Presidential Medals of Freedom. Like, all accomplished be, And all they've done on
1: and off the court. It'd be interesting to see how that shapes up. And how this virus, you know, impacts things like that. Um, how do you think about that? Like, to, you know, we're coming up on election, so how do you think that th- the this virus will impact that this presidential election coming up? I hope that voting
0: by mail becomes a viable option for people, because you know what happened a few weeks ago in a special election in Wisconsin. The Republicans controlled the state legislature. So they basically said, "You have to come out and vote, or it doesn't count." So people basically putting their lives at risk, were waiting in line for hours to vote in that special election in Wisconsin. It turns out the Democrat won against the Republican. They probably thought they could suppress the vote and have the Republican win, and Trump was endorsing the Republican, but enough people still came out to vote for the Democrat. But should you have to risk your life to vote? No. So I'm hoping that by November, on Election Day that voting by mail is an option. But if it's not, a lot of people are going to come out, put their lives at risk, because they're going to want to make a statement. And I think they'll want to say that the country needs to go in a different direction.
1: Right, I I definitely agree with you on that. You know, uh, I think they should have some kind of measure just so that people are able to um, cast their vote that's their you know, their right to, to be able to do so. And, you know, this virus has really impacted so much. And it's, yeah. it's really um, sad to see certain things that's been going on. Some of the cases that's happened that's ended up in people losing their lives. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really, um, really rocked our nation in so many different ways. And, you know, I for one just wish that we can finally um, find some kind of resolution or some kind of, you know, common ground to, to return to some kind of normalcy.
0: Yeah, we, we need a lot more uh, testing, as uh, as we were discussing earlier, South Korea and the United States basically took action at the same time, but different actions. In South Korea, widespread testing and contact tracing. Oh, you have coronavirus, you live on that block, we're going to test everybody on that block. You work at this company, we're going to test everyone at this company. You go to this church, we're going to test everyone at that church. Everyone you associate with is going to be tested. That was the South Korean approach. They're at the point now where they're back playing their Major League Baseball, their version of professional baseball. We don't know when Major League Baseball is going to be played again here because we haven't had widespread testing. We don't do contact tracing. Some of more than half the states now have opened up. I'm in New York where we're still having the stay-at-home quarantine. But the number of deaths are going down in New York from close to 800 a day to now less than 300 a day. Now, granted, that's a lot of people dying every day, a lot of families being impacted, a lot of people losing their loved ones. But from almost 800 deaths every day to less than 300 shows that what Governor Cuomo here in New York is doing by listening to the medical experts, it's working. But in other states, oh, we're going to open the tattoo parlors. Hmm. We're going to open the gyms. Yeah, you know, it's just going to lead to a spike in more deaths. And as long as that's happening, I, Corey, I don't really see how professional sports can come back when there's going to be that fear of who you're sitting next
1: to. Right. Right. I, for one, you know, by trade, I work at a gym uh-huh. and um, our governor has allowed um, our gym to be open as of the 18th. Okay. We're going to be opening back up uh, under a, uh, um, some really really strict restrictions um we're only allowed to have uh 25 occupancy mm-hmm. um social distancing is going to be um the theme and i am uh, um you know afraid to to go back mm-hmm. uh, this is uh that that's what i do primarily okay um i did pick up you know a you know, a hobbies, you know, doing podcasts and, you know, interviewing some really, really great people because I you know, I I've always wanted to um to you know, to start it, but I never had the chance to because I actually managed the gym. Okay. And right. so a lot of my time and um decision making would go into, you know, the gym. I was, you know, all about that. But then I had this time to be able to, you know, to brainstorm some ideas and think of what I want to do with the the podcast and you know I am on I'm on like almost twenty episodes now. Oh great, great. So I've been trying to do um do that mm-hmm. and you know met a lot of great people, um, including yourself. Oh, thank um, you. I, and I do appreciate you that you um you know took the time to, to come on the show. Um I do want to take a quick break because um we do have a segment in the show where I uh introduce these um you know ten Uh, unscripted questions um, from this this thing called Poddex. Um, It's the interview deck version of the Poddex. Um, We've asked 10 random questions, and then you give your best answer based on what was asked. So I'm going to take a quick break, and then we'll discuss it, and then we'll end the show on that note. Sounds good. All right. Okay, and we're back. So um, now we're going to go into our uh, Poddex phase of our interview, and we're going to ask Cecil 10 random questions from the deck. You ready, Cecil? I'm ready. All right. First question. What will people look back at us 50 years from now and be shocked and appalled by?
0: They will be shocked and appalled that America elected Donald Trump president of the United States.
1: (laughs) That's a good one. That's a good one. I think I actually uh, um, agree with you on that. I do. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't expecting that but i agree <laughs> all right next question what would be your best day ever so if you had a perfect day when like you woke up mm-hmm. and you know then you end the day what would you say would be the best day ever wow um, well they gave out the pulitzer
0: prizes just the other day i would my day would begin with a phone call that my book Different Strokes won the Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction, and I proposed to my girlfriend, and she said yes. So then we've got a wedding to prepare for, and then let's say it's basketball season, and I've taken a liking to the Lakers because I like LeBron, and that they win the NBA championship. So he. Becomes one of the few players to win an NBA championship on three different teams.
1: See, so I know I liked you. I'm a huge Laker fan. <laughs> I know it was something about you. You're a smart man. <laughs> we definitely got to get you back on this show.
0: <laughs> I like that. I would like that.
1: <laughs> what do you consider the most overrated virtue? Hmm. I'm gonna say being rich.
0: Because people assume that if you're rich, you're smarter than others, but I have to come back to Trump. His daddy gave him money. He would run casinos and fail, to get more money. He would make business deals that fail, get more money. Like things like Trump University, Trump Steaks, Trump Vodka, Trump Mortgage, Trump Casinos, all failures. But he kept getting money from daddy. Yet his selling point in 2016 is I'm a billionaire. I know how to make trade deals. I know how to create jobs. It was all a con job, and I think a lot of people were seduced by that because he's rich
1: yeah and i I do have to agree with you on that you know a lot of people attribute money to intelligence just because mm-hmm. you have money, but a lot of times you know if you go that you know tr- you know travel down that road and how this person was able to be financial free. Um, you know, it, it, you know, just like Trump, you know, his, that he inherited or, mm-hmm. um, you know, they just was in the right position to, to, to do this. Like, I think like with Jerry Jones, we talked briefly about Jerry Jones. He was flat broke, mm-hmm. you know, before, and you know, he, he was in the oil and then he had one all um, well that, uh, hit and he ended up becoming a, you know, a, a mil- I think a billionaire, I, you know, just out of that oil industry. You know, so it just was just the luck of the draw at that time because he was flat broke. Like they actually, it was it was a situation where he had a, a credit card and it, it didn't, um, it didn't go through. He was making a purchase or something and the lady snapped his card in his face. Wow. So like, <laughs> you know, bad. it just, that that <laughs> yeah, like look it up, man. Like I, 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 I look up stuff like that just see how, That's you know, people rise to power and how they, you know, make money and stuff like that so you're absolutely right and like like you know being rich is very overrated um which talent would you most like to have if it could be anything what talent would do you wish that you have i grew up into a lot of jazz and like
0: jazz pianists. like this guy oscar peterson was amazing i wish i could play the piano i i had piano lessons for a while when I was a kid, but they were going on at the same time as my friends were playing ball in the park, and I wanted to go out there. So I never had the
1: discipline to learn to play the piano. Okay. I wish that's a good one as well. Who is your favorite hero of fiction? Could be anybody, fictional character. I
0: kind of like the Robin Hood story Take from the rich to give to the poor. I like that Robin Hood story.
1: Yeah, that's a, that was a good one too.
0: <laughs>
1: Who are your heroes in real life? Muhammad Ali was was one.
0: And um the more I learned about Malcolm X growing up, you know, he died before, you know, my time, but the more I read about him, he became a hero of mine and I liked the Spike Lee's movie where Denzel Washington played Malcolm X and Angela Bassett played Dr. Betty Chavez like that of people who are still with us uh, Barack Obama became a hero of mine I, I did some volunteer work for his campaign in 2008 he came to speak at St. Peter's College in Jersey City and I just went to hear him in the in the basketball gym it was packed and I was so impressed that I signed up to do volunteer work Basically, phone calls and canvassing, knocking on doors, and when he was elected president, election night two thousand eight was one of the happiest days of my life.
1: Wow, you you uh, have a lot of um, different stories and backgrounds. I mean, I, I, I'm really glad that um, I was able to connect with you. Yeah, I'm glad was, you did. Though so. it's a lot of interesting did. stories. Thank you. Who'd play you in a movie?
0: That's interesting. Um, oh goodness! Someone told me I looked like. Um, I can't You have to be a real football fanatic to remember this guy. The New York Jets used to have a running back named Bruce Harper. wasn't a star, but he, you know, played. And um, I guess it was maybe twenty, twenty-five years ago. People said I looked like him, but he's not a star, so I wouldn't want him. Maybe because I'm not tall. I'm taller than Kevin Hart, but he's a star. Kevin, Hart. Kevin, Hart. <laughs> Kevin Hart. Are you funny? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> He'd he make me sound funnier than I am. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Which band or artist, dead or alive, would play at your funeral? Mm, interesting. Like Bob Marley,
0: reggae man. Get up, stand up, stand up for your rights. I actually like but that song. Yeah. Don't give up the fight. I, I don't know a lot of reggae artists, but I grew up listening to a lot of Bob Marley.
1: That's a good one. Like <laughs> I like that song. That's a good song. <laughs> now I already know the answer to this question. This question right. I've now now Caesar. So these questions are completely random. I just I have this deck of cards right here. I picked okay. 10 cards out of this deck of cards right here. Okay. And these are random questions. So, but I already know your answer to this question. What book belongs on everyone's bookshelf?
0: Different Strokes, Serena <laughs> Venus, and the Unfinished Black Tennis Revolution. I knew it.
1: <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs>
0: uh-uh. oh, man,
1: um, what's left on your bucket list? Interesting.
0: Oh, um, I I used to have going to the Super Bowl, but that's not such a big deal for me anymore. You know, um, I'd like to interview LeBron James. Oh wow, okay. Yeah, I, 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 he's I have, interesting. Yeah, yeah, I was out of covering basketball before he came in. I've you know admired him on on TV and you know like the way he handles himself. I like what he has become as the entrepreneur and you know he's not afraid to talk back to to Trump he called him a bum when Trump was talking some nonsense you know lebron would stand up you know and talk about things that are real you know dealing with life as a you know black superstar and well being a parent raising you know children in this in this era this this age of Trump so to speak and creating opportunities where he's going to be very successful for a long time long after he stops playing basketball because he has set himself up to make those moves and you know you may agree i think he chose the lakers as much for opportunities after basketball and for you know what he can bring to them as a basketball player because you know he's out there in hollywood now
1: absolutely i'd like to interview him completely the opposite of michael jordan (laughs) <laughs> LeBron um,
0: get a 10 part series at, at some point because he's experienced a lot i remember when espn put him on for the first time well, the first time i saw him he was still in high school and everyone said oh he's gonna be the number one pick in the nba draft he went to notre dame high school in
1: akron and they put him on and i watched that game i said wow he's an he's a high school player that was like a uh, two thousand one, two thousand two. Mm-hmm. He was on ESPN two. Um, I would watch those games too. I was in high school still myself. Um, I believe he was uh, um, I think his, he was a high school senior at the time yeah, yeah. when I was in uh, You know, watching his games and it was kind of crazy because he was the first and only high school player they would like televise on ESPN two. Like his games, his yeah. actual high school games it was crazy. That's right. That's right. They started doing it later with people like Zion, but I, I agree with you. LeBron was the first one I
0: remember At first high school player, I remember them putting him on.
1: ESPN. Yeah. <laughs> that was that was crazy. Yeah. yeah. So Cecil, that's our show um for today. I I wanna um have the audience have the opportunity to know how they can get your book. Now I did like I told you before we had got on the the show, um, did, you know, do this and research and I was looking up, you know, the book and things like that, but you, you know, mentioned some other avenues where we can actually find the book at, um, could you share that and also how we can actually follow your, um, your upcoming works and things like that. Do you have like a website or anything like that? Um, yeah, can- I do.
0: I have a website on cecilharrisbooks.com. It's not set up yet to order the books off the website, but there are places people can go, um. Amazon.com, they sell anything, but two places I recommend is um, bookshop.org. It's a consortium of small bookstore owners who are really hurting in this, you know, during this coronavirus pandemic, you know, bookstores all over the country have closed. But they've organized so you can order the book online. They fill the order immediately, ship it out to you, and they offer uh, a discount. On the price, org and also the publisher of the book is University of Nebraska Press, as unl.edu, and then there's a link to the on to the bookstore, the, and they sell the book at a, a discount as well.
1: Hmm. And I, I really appreciate you taking out the time to to come on my show. Like I told you, um, you know, in my correspondence. You know, I'm just now getting this thing off the ground and, you know, just, you know, finally getting some um, some guests on and meeting new people and, you know, um, going over their backgrounds has been very rewarding for me. And I would like to, uh, you know, keep in touch with you, you know, like that. Um, to, uh, you know, kind of pick your brain on some other things. And, you know, I I've thought about writing books myself mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe... It was uh, by fate because I was thinking about going into eBooks. I was looking at um, you know doing an eBook, and I was struggling trying to figure out how to even start an eBook. You know, I'm not literary. I don't know how to write anything. So, so I was wondering, um, you know, w- maybe one day I can you know kind of pick your brain on that.
0: That'd be good. I appreciate that. I'm glad you're doing the show. You're doing well, and you'll continue to grow as, as, as you do it. And perhaps you know you can you know put together like excerpts you know, the best of and send it out to LA and you know you can do that interview with LeBron
1: oh uh, most definitely that would be a great thing because I've only been to LA once and the time that I went it was during the all-star break they were in Charlotte so I wasn't able to meet any of the players they wasn't even doing basketball games it was uh, February of last year uh, me and my wife actually took that trip out there because it was one of my bucket lists. I was just to go to California and you know to go to LA mm-hmm. and just to be around the Staples Center. You know I've been following the the Lakers for so long and I was a big fan. And you know my wife said we should just go. Let's just let's just go. So we were planning on going to another trip and then we ended up you know saying that we was going to go to LA because it was one of the biggest things I wanted to do. It was a little bit more expensive, but. We yeah. made it happen, and I and I want to go back so I can actually go to a Lakers game. I still have yet to be inside the Staples Center at an actual game, and I've been following the Lakers for all these years. <laughs> yeah, you gotta you gotta make that happen for sure. That's definitely <laughs> on my bucket list for sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so thank you, Cecil, again for stopping yeah. by the Out of Bounds Sports Podcast. Um, it was a great show. Um, I, I really appreciate it and hopefully we can get you back on again. Thank you, Corey. I appreciate that. Thanks for the invitation, man. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we're out. If you love the Out of Bounds Sports
0: Podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes.
1: Until next time.